0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we conclude our two-week series with James Jordan as he discusses the book of Revelation. This year marks the 10th anniversary of our work here at Theopolis, and since our first course in August 2013, we've hosted dozens of classes, which are our intensive and regional courses. We've produced hundreds of podcasts, just like this one, hundreds of videos and articles. We've published a bunch of books, including the first edition of the Theopolis Psalter. We've sponsored the Civitas group and released our Theopolis app. All of these things that we do, all of this content that we produce, is just a means to fulfill our primary calling, which is to train faithful, courageous, imaginative leaders to revive and reform the church, to expand the mission of the church, and to ultimately transform the world. We've been getting that done. The Apollo students serve in Anglican and CREC and Acts 29 and PCA churches. Our students are preaching sermons, leading worship, teaching at schools, writing books and articles, pursuing doctoral degrees shepherding congregations, and initiating innovative Theopolitan ministry strategies. And we are very grateful to God to see these first fruits of our labor. We want you to come celebrate with us, though. Join us for our third Theopolitan Ministry Conference, which is going to be on July 17th and 18th, and plan to stay on the evening of the 18th for our Trinity Feast, where we're going to celebrate 10 years of our work with food and drink and music and singing, and an after-dinner talk by Kelly Capek. Also, we are at the end of our fiscal year financially, so we would also ask you to celebrate by supporting our work financially. We would love to get a head start on the next year, which is the beginning of our next decade. So please consider making a donation at the link in the show notes or at our website, theopolisinstitute.com, so that the next 10 years of our work can be even more fruitful than the past 10. If you get $50 or more a month or $500 a year, you will also be added to our list for the Theopolitan, which is a very robust newsletter from Peter Lighthart that comes out every Friday, which includes exhortations, notes about what he's reading and studying, other essays by him, as well as a new feature this year, which is notes from Beth Elim, which is an audio file of either a private lecture that he's given, or just his musings and things he's thinking about while working at his desk. So if you give it that amount, you will be listed on the Theopolitan as well. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan concluding his brief series on the book of Revelation.
1: And I wanted to talk, and this is real speculative stuff here. Continuing on with the fact that the book of Revelation takes place as a ritual And the symbolism in the book takes up from the rituals in Israel and the event of the book of Revelation itself is a ritual. That is, it's the Lord's day service taking place in heaven into which human beings are participating, beginning to participate. John begins to participate and that the church is going to be participating in this from now on. Then what can we say about the nature of rituals? And where I left off was that rituals are microchronic time sequences, small time sequences, microchronic, that duplicate or somehow rather correlate to larger structures in time and history. And what I want to try to do is unpack that with some illustrations, and this is, Stuff that I do not have completely nailed down in my mind by any stretch of the imagination. But I thought, well, if I present this to Biblical Horizons people who, of course, are on the cutting edge too, maybe I'll get some other people thinking about it. What I want to do, first of all, is mention the fairly simple one that's not so hard to understand, and that's Genesis 1. Genesis 1, we can see, is a protochronic time sequence draw this out we have well let's do it in space first space is easier for us than time in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth the heaven is formed and full and light but the earth is dark and unformed and empty then God starts to heavenize the earth and he does it in two kinds of ways one he sets up a little sanctuary whether it's the Garden of Eden or the tabernacle and the temple, a small sanctuary that is a model of heaven. And then also, the earth as a whole is a large model of heaven. So we have a heavenly archetype, and then we have made on the earth here a microcosm, a small cosmos, That duplicates the macro column. Now, if you have true new lives, you know all this. You biblical horizons people, you know all this. certainly isn't original with me. Everybody knows in the ancient world, temples were modeled to the universe. That's how you control the universe. If you believe in magic, you go in the temple and you do things, and that controls the stars. Or... More commonly, since they were all basically pantheists of one sort or, or another, you study the stars, you make your temple just like it so that you're conforming to nature and natural laws. So what happens in the temple is a small version of what the whole nation is like, and it's corresponding to the sky. So we have a heavenly archetype that's telling you what to do in your little temple, how to make it, and how to make your society. Small model, large model... And the original model. Now time is the same way. Only if we need time language instead of space language, we don't want to say microcosm. We want to say microchron, protochron, and And We're not talking about heaven above and earth beneath. We're talking about the first things and the later things. So what do we have? We've got Genesis 1, which lasts six days, taking up 144 hours. And that is the proto or first time sequence. That time sequence is then duplicated in the entire history of the world as a whole as we move toward the eschatological Sabbath. And that would be a macro problem. In fact, there are various levels of that. For instance, the seven periods of Old Covenant history Follow out these seven days. You can take the letters to the seven churches, and you notice the imagery in those churches goes with seven periods in Bible history, and you can lay right over that the seven days of creation and see correspondences so that that Old Testament history in its seven periods, or creation history, is a big form of these seven days. And they're medium forms and bigger forms and smaller forms. They're all following out this pattern because the Holy Spirit does it. The Holy Spirit is in the world at the instant of creation. I don't think the world ever existed without the Spirit being inside of it. In fact, I don't think you could have a creation without an energizing Spirit. And the energizing Spirit works a certain kind of way. And he works in a seven-fold pattern because he is the sevenfold Spirit. And the Spirit works in seven days... To make the world. He comes inside of human beings, so human beings live through something like this. He's in human history, so human history is something like this. So we can begin to expect that Genesis 1 tells us something about how the Spirit moves a world in history from darkness to light, from shapelessness to shape, from emptiness to fullness. That's going to be something like what human life is like. That's going to be something like what human history is like. This proto-chronic event reveals macro-chronic events. But there's also ritual versions of it within here. We've got up a little ritual that duplicates Genesis 1 at a ritual level. Just as the temple duplicates heaven and the world at a symbolic level, a ritual duplicates Protochron and the macrochron at a ritual level, at a small, compact, symbolic level. You move through seven stages. And you can look at this some other time, or not. I wrote an essay in Biblical Horizons a while back proving, no, arguing, presenting a case, making a case that the fundamental sacrifice in Leviticus chapter 1 what is done to that animal? corresponds to the seven days of creation. The animal is moved through those phases, laying hands on it to chopping it up into pieces, dividing it up, doing this, that, and the other. That if you actually were to take those things, those steps, and compare them to Genesis 1 and think about it, you can see a recreation happening there. Why? Because when human beings sin, they fall out of the place where the Spirit works in history. Just imagine, think of this spatially, because I don't know how else to think about it. But the Spirit is moving in history, and when you sin and grieve the Spirit or quench the Spirit or alienate yourself from the Spirit, you stop moving in history and you drop out of that process and you're stuck as a baby. And not only a child, but what did we read in Peter? A perverse child. Someone who's not growing and is stuck in being a baby because they reject the opportunity to move in history. You refuse history. You become an Essene or an Anabaptist. You drop out. People are always doing that one way or the other. We're all tempted to do that. So, what does then the sacrifice do? It plugs you back into the realm where the Spirit works by recreating. If I'm right, and it goes through those stages. And there are various forms of it. In my book, Covenant Sequence in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, I argue that Leviticus 23, which gives us the calendar of the Israelite year, starting with the Sabbath, Passover, Firstfruits, Pentecost, Trumpets, Day of Covering, and the Feast of Ingathering, is moving through the seven days of creation on an annual basis. So the world is being recreated, not recreated out of nothing. But the Spirit is remaking it, like he made it in the first place. In the book of Revelation, you have this over and over again. You've got seven trumpets. What's the fourth trumpet? It's against the sun, moon, and stars. Seven bowls. What's the fourth bowl? It's against the sun. You're moving through the seven days of creation over and over again as the world is decreated and recreated. Those are some ritual things that duplicate Genesis 1 and also show something about the course of history. I'm not going to say any more about that, partly because in literature that I've made available, I've got some of it, and because there's something else that I think is more interesting for us to talk about. And I have more notes on it available to me this morning. If I continued and said anything more about this, we'd have to get into a lot of details and it would take hours. I just want to say this. Uh-huh. So, so uh, is there anything in the uh, physical work itself? The the seven days, all you know there is here. You know, you know, you know, that there, you know, the there anything in the physical work God does the week arise from anything in nature? No, I think that's what makes the week different from nature. That's why when you move from the old creation, which is kind of under angelic and natural patterns, and all those things fall away, the week and the Sabbath day remain. Because the Sabbath is entirely something that is imposed on the natural order. The same is true in the tabernacle and the temple. There are no straight lines in nature and no perfect circles. But... Symbolic architecture in the Bible consists entirely of rectangles and perfect circles. Something imposed on the world. And similarly, the week doesn't arise out of anything in the stars or the moon or the sun. None of those heavenly clocks tell us what a week is, because none of them perfectly go with the week, but the week is something imposed on. So keeping the week is like building a house. It's something only human beings do. Does that make sense? That's my answer. That those things are parallel. In nature, the shapes of things follow Fibonacci number series, which are not squares and are not circles. They make spiral shapes. And they're, you know, ir what? I don't know. What did I say something? It says when you stand before men you'll know what to say, and I've already forgotten. <laughs> No, it's not. You see, you got four-day weeks, seven-day, eight-day weeks in Rome. You just had Ides and Calends within the lunar month. You didn't have any specific pattern. Eight-day weeks in Rome? Yeah. No, I have books on that that show that in spite of what you might think that the human body needs, and, and maybe it is best for the human body, but actually it turns out that all over the world you got different kinds of weeks and patterns of rest and market day weeks and Stuff going on. Okay, that was off the subject. That's okay. I'm going to talk about the patriarchal history because it looks to me, as I've been teaching in Genesis, I've noticed a pattern that I think is important for understanding protochronic, microchronic, and macrochronic periods of time. And all of this is just large background to Revelation. I'm only trying to lay some foundations for an eventual better understanding of Revelation. And I don't think we're going to get into the text of the book of Revelation too much in this hour. But, if you look at the Israelite calendar, you've got at Passover a kid or lamb slain. We say Passover lamb. It doesn't have to be a lamb. It can be a kid. If you move forward to the day of covering... Actually, if you move forward to the day of first proof, which is right after Passover, what's the animal offering then? Does anybody know? Only a male lamb. Okay, And that's why in Revelation 5, when Jesus ascends into heaven as the first fruit, He's a lamb. He's not a kid. If you move down in history, you get to the day of covering or atonement, and you've got two goats. And what follows immediately after that is the 70 bulls on This is the beginning of the year in the first month, and this is the climax of the year in the seventh month. And in between there, something is happening. Now, if you look at Genesis, it's kind of interesting because in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is told to take his son, Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice kill him and put him in fire and send him up on the elevator to God. Now, Abraham figures that he's going to have to receive him back from the dead because God had promised that Isaac would have children. And so, although Abraham is certainly not happy about this, he's not undergoing any Kierkegaardian super angst either because he knows that this is going to have a positive outcome, painful though it may be for the moment. Well, when he gets up there, as you know, A ram is substituted for Isaac and replaces Isaac as a son. From that point on, all sacrifices are sons. That's why, as I pointed out the other day, uh, Leviticus 1 says you take a son of the herd. You're sacrificing your sons when you sacrifice these animals, which, of course, proves that animals are sons and that they'll be resurrected and be with us in the world to come, as we all know. At any rate, whether that's entirely true or not, They're called sons. They're treated as sons, which means you put them to death. (laughs) Now, if we compare this to Passover, it's very similar. Because what did the Passover lamb substitute for? Substituted for the sons. The firstborn sons. And Isaac is the firstborn son. He's the firstborn son because Ishmael is gone by this time. And so the firstborn in has descended down to Isaac. Isaac is a firstborn son. He's replaced by the ram. The firstborn sons of Israel are replaced by a ram. This starts the year. Now, if we look at what comes next in the Genesis story, we have this interesting phenomenon in Genesis chapter 27 where Isaac demands a meal and Rebekah provides it by killing two goats. Now, if you study out kid of the goats, you'll find that it always represents children. For instance, a few chapters later on, in Genesis chapter 38, when Judah visits Tamar without realizing he has done so, and she's disguised as a cult prostitute, so he is happily apostatizing from the faith by visiting her. He tells her he will send her a kid of the goats, and he leaves his signet and the rolling pin that rolls it out and the cord with her as something to be exchanged for this goat. But she disappears, and nine months later, she has two children. Well, you don't have to have a lot of imagination here to realize that these two children are what he sent to her, and they are her kids. Even in English, the word kid refers to both a goat child and a human child. So he did send her a kid. Send her two of them. A chapter before that, in chapter 37, when Joseph is killed and thrown into the pit, which that's what that means, you're being put back in the earth, they kill a kid of the goats to get the blood to represent them. You can follow this on down. When Rebecca takes two kids of the goats. They represent Jacob and Esau. And she makes one meal out of them. Now, that looks a lot like the Day of Atonement. And it looks more like the Day of Atonement the more you look at it, the more comparisons you make. But before we make those comparisons, I want you to think about Genesis 27. Now, you know the story. We're well, certainly not going to read all 60 or so verses of that chapter. Isaac comes... And he sneaks around and he says to Esau, I want you to come on in here and I'm going to give you the blessing. He doesn't tell anybody else he's going to do this. He wants to do it behind closed doors. And he says, I want you to bring me a meal, the kind I like, and I'll eat it and I'll give you the blessing. Now, if you want to understand what that means, it's helpful to contrast it with what Jacob does in chapter 49. The word Jacob means replacement. And Jacob is not really so much the replacement for Esau as he is the replacement for Isaac because Isaac fails to rule his house the right way, and so Jacob has to do it. Jacob calls his whole family together. He doesn't try to do anything on the sly. He does not tell them, prepare a meal for me, and after I eat it, I'll give you a blessing. He just does it. What does Jacob do? Well, he passes judgment the right way. By calling evil, evil, and good, good. He has true knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge of good and evil means passing judgment the right way. That's why children are said not to have knowledge of good and evil, and kings are said to have knowledge of good and evil. Jacob calls good, good, and evil, evil. He passes judgment on his sons in terms of a good standard, a proper standard of good and evil. So he shows what it means to be a true and mature man. What does Isaac do? And the reason Jacob has to replace Isaac, Isaac calls evil good and good evil. He does not have knowledge of good and evil. Why doesn't he? Because he's reproduced the sin of Adam, which was to seize forbidden fruit and eat the wrong food. What is Isaac's problem? He wants Esau's food. Esau is the son that God has said right from the beginning, Esau is not to inherit. Jacob is to inherit. That's a command. Isaac knows that. Now, for 77 years, he's refused to do it. Why? Because he likes Esau's food. He likes the wrong food. He eats the wrong food. His God is his belly. He's actually become Esau by eating Esau's food. And now, having Sin against the choice of food, just like Adam did. He had the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. He disobeyed God and took the wrong one. Isaac has the same choice. Two sons, two trees, two foods. God says, Jacob. Isaac says, Esau chooses the wrong food. As a result, he's blind. As a result, he does not have knowledge of good and evil. He calls evil good and good evil. So he's in apostasy at this point. Now, Jacob has to replace him in this. Or well, what does Isaac do? Isaac puts himself in the place of God. That's what Adam was trying to do. By eating that food, you will be like God. Isaac says, I am like God. If you want to get a blessing from God in the Bible, what do you do? Well, you take a goat or a lamb or an ox, or a turtle dove, or a pigeon, and you kill it, and you make a meal, and you offer the meal to God, and the book of Leviticus says it's food for God, and God smells the savor, and God is pleased, and God gives you a blessing. Now that's exactly what Isaac requires. Isaac requires the food that is a delicacy that smells the way he likes it. And he's going to eat it. And then he'll feel good and as a matter of fact, just in case you missed the point, he goes out of his way to smell. Jacob is smelled by, dressed like Esau. So he smells like Esau. And he smells him. And when he smells the sweet savor of the clothes, then he gives the blessing. So this entire passage is a duplication of the sacrificial ritual with Isaac being the God. And you can see then when Jacob calls his sons together to give them blessing... And when Abraham did it, they don't do that. So we're in a ritual context here. What happens? Rebecca is the one who takes things in hand to heal the situation. She thwarts her husband, and it says that when Isaac realized he'd been thwarted, and he knew all along that he probably couldn't get by with this, so he was nervous, and that's why he keeps saying, Are you really Jacob? Are you really Esau? Are you really Esau? Is this really working? I can't believe this is working out. So that's what's in his mind. And when it doesn't work out, he instantly realizes that it didn't work out. And he confirms the blessing. He doesn't say, Hey, I was tricked. I'm taking this back. and I'm going to give it to Esau. He says, No. <laughs> okay. I knew this wouldn't work. Whoever came in here and was blessed, and I know who it was, he's he's going to be blessed. Rebecca... In order to make a deceptive meal, takes two goats, it says. She tells Jacob, bring me two goats. Two kids of a goat. Now, just how fat was Isaac? Two whole goats. Even if they're kids. I don't think, I mean, this is, you know, this is not your 20 ounce porterhouse from Lubo's. This is uh, a lot more. Now, maybe they just took the delicate, you know, the best parts out or something. But the implication is, you don't have to have two whole kids of the goats to make a meal for one person. So what she's doing here has meaning. I'm gonna tell you what that meaning is. She's taking Jacob and Esau and combining them through death and putting them both in Jacob. So Jacob now takes Jacob's food, spiced like Esau. And he takes his own body, dressed like Esau. So he smells like Esau. Everything is combined here. The two sons are combined into one, and that one is Jacob. You see, Esau was a hunter. He's like Nimrod. In fact, the word gibor is used for Nimrod and it's used for Esau, and that's it. A mighty one. The mighty ones before the flood, the giborim, Nimrod is called that, and then Esau is called it. So what does Esau do? Well, he treats himself as crown prince. He's out hunting around animals all the time. What's Jacob doing? Jacob is maintaining the flocks. Jacob's food, then, is goats and sheep. He's the guy who manages the flocks. And that's actually the covenant food. Because what Isaac does in the preceding chapters, he digs all these wells of water, and the wells of water are there to water flocks. You don't dig wells of water to water deer and gazelle. They can take care of themselves. So the true covenant household food is being maintained by Jacob and the goats are Jacob's food. But the goats are spiced like Esau's food and so it's combined. Now, does this happen other times in the Bible? Yeah, it does. In Zechariah and Ezekiel are big emphasis on how Judah and Ephraim, which are two brothers at war, are going to be killed together in an exile. And when the nation is resurrected after the exile, what do we keep reading? They'll be recombined. I'll take the two staffs and bind them together. They'll be one people. And the two become one through a death and resurrection. They're killed, mixed together, and come back to life again as one people. That is actually something that happens a number of times. We've talked about how the mixed multitude joins in with Israel at the exodus from Egypt. Well, what happens? You come out of Egypt. you got a mixed multitude of God-fearers over here. And you got your circumcised Israelites over here. They're in two camps. The camp of Israel is all carefully measured out and numbered. You don't number the mixed multitude. And it's measured out. You're in tribes. You're positioned around the tabernacle. And outside, scattered around, is the mixed multitude. Whoever they are. Might have been a lot of them. Now, because of the sin, this whole body is killed by being forced to wander in the wilderness, which is a place of death for 38 years. And finally, that death is removed in the death of Aaron in Numbers chapter 20 or 19, whichever it is, 20. Then after that, they're resurrected and they go and they march into the promised land. And there is a new census of the nation on the other side of this death and resurrection. But when you come out on the other side of this, there's no more mixed multitude in Israel. They're one. They've been made into one body through the crucible of death and resurrection. That's what happens with these two goats. They're combined to make one meal. Jacob and Esau are combined to make one body, and the body is in Jacob. But now, what if some of the people in this new body don't want to be there and apostatize? Well, then this gets cut in half again, and these are sent out. So let's look at the Exodus from Egypt. God has combined the mixed multitude and the Hebrews into one new body who are called Israelites. What happens? Some of them don't belong there. They get involved with Balaam at Baal Peor. And they apostatize. And so they're killed. And the body's purged. Okay, let's look at the apostolic church. God-fearers. Jews are combined through the great tribulation and all this suffering into one new body. But some people don't want to be there. They're apostates. They're going to be killed and taken out. Jacob and Esau are combined into one dish. And This is an opportunity for Esau. Esau will bond with Jacob. If Esau will allow Jacob to be the older brother who he's supposed to have been all along, why Esau can participate in the covenant community and be saved. But what does Esau say in chapter 27 as soon as this is over? As soon as my daddy's dead, I'm killing Jacob. So he's cast out. He is the so called blessing that is given to Esau is away from the good things of the earth will be your dwelling, away from the dew of heaven will be your encampment, and so forth. Because he won't be part of the new body. He's like the Judaizers. He's like the people who apostatize in Numbers chapter 25 and have to be cast out. Now, what happens on the Day of Atonement? These are historical instances of this, but I'm saying the rituals duplicate these historical things. On the Day of Covering in Leviticus 16, you got two goats. One goat is sacrificed as food for God. So, that's a positive thing. That's a positive thing. The other goat is cast out. What happened to Jacob and Esau? Well, it might look like Jacob was cast out, but he wasn't. He was sent out to get a bride, which is very nice. And as he left the household, what did Jacob encounter? A ladder that reaches to heaven. Going up. What happens to the positive goat in the Day of Atonement? It's put on the fire and goes up the ladder of heaven. Meanwhile, Esau is told, you're going to be cut off from everything. What happens to the other goat? It's cut off and sent to Azazel to destruction. So this ritual, I submit, of the day of covering, is picking up from this historical event. This is one generation later. Isaac, a lamb. Generation later, two goats. There's more that could be said about that. If you'll just think about it, read Leviticus 16 and meditate on it, you might find more parallels. But there don't have to be a lot of parallels here. We have a history. This patriarchal history is the proto-crime. It's the original history that is now being duplicated, I submit, in the ritual of the Israelite year for a reason that we'll get to in a minute. Well, what is the next thing? Okay, well, all right. I wish that explaining rituals could be done in less than eight or nine hours. Yeah, just do it. Just go ahead and do it, Well I can't. That's my problem. I only have two-thirds of this understood. Maybe I only have a billionth of it. I don't know. I don't have it all now. Let's just continue on with this patriarchal narrative history. What happens next in the story and you wouldn't realize this probably unless you think about it for a minute and maybe even look in the concordance, is that Jacob goes out and Jacob gets a wife and he winds up with extra wives too. And he starts having all these flocks. The word flock occurs about 10 times in the book of Genesis until Jacob gets out after his blessing and starts to acquire an estate. And then the word flock occurs 55 times in the rest of the Jacob narrative along with dozens of instances of ewe lamb, kid, ram, he-goat, she-goat, all these words that relate to flocks start to occur piled up in the Jacob narrative. What they represent is the formation of a community and they are equivalent to Jacob having all these sons. And a body is being formed out of this resurrected covenant. The next thing that happens in the narrative is that Joseph goes to the Gentiles and the Gentiles convert. Now, let me just do this. I'm going to do this twice. I'm going to do it once simply and then a bit more complicated because it's both are true. We go from Isaac's sacrifice, which is this lamb in Genesis 22, to the two goats of the Day of Atonement the gospel go into the Gentiles and Joseph. That's our history. And if we are moving in the realm that the Spirit is operating in, we're plugged into that history. Just as you and I have been plugged into the olive tree. That means we get the whole history. Right after the flood, this olive starts. We get that whole history and it really goes back to Genesis 3 where God made fruit trees and that includes olives. We get that whole history. Now, if we sin, what happens? We get broken out of the olive tree. We get broken out of the vine. We get cut off from that history. And all the benefits of that history, we lose. If we repent, we get plugged back into that history. Now, this is our history right here. The patriarchs. We are the heirs of everything that God worked into the consciousness of Abraham and then into the consciousness of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and on down to Moses, we inherit all of that, all those benefits—not merits that are earned now, but the psychological benefits of being grown-ups instead of children. If you're brought up by an adult, you grow up to be an adult. And God makes Abraham into an adult and gives him a child when he's a hundred years old. So he's bringing up a child as an adult. And Isaac has children when he's old. And Jacob doesn't get married till he's 84. These people are all turned into big adults to raise up more adults. So in terms of what we were hearing last night, God is making these people into adults. And you inherit that if you're brought up by adults. I mean, if your dad is still trying to live in the 60s like a hippie and your parents are listening to rock and roll and wearing love beads and haven't outgrown being 18 years old, then you're probably not going to grow up there would be a lot more than that. But if your parents are adults, then you're more likely to grow up to be an adult. You inherit not a series of brownie points and merits. You inherit the maturity that has been woven into a family line. That's why people who have been Christians for generations have benefits over people who are brand new converts. Although the brand new convert is instantly by the Spirit plugged into all of that, and can rapidly mature into where the church is right now. You see what I'm saying? We're not used to thinking in time terms. Now, if you're an Israelite, you come out of Egypt, you have all this. The Holy Spirit has done this much in history. And if you are with the Spirit, the Spirit can rapidly move you into that amount of maturity and bring you up to speed to where you've got all the benefits of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses In your consciousness, you have that much wisdom. But if you sin, what happens? You fall out of that. So if you repent, what is the way you repent? You do a sacrifice that replicates this history and pulls you back into it. I think that's why the sacrifices, the sacrifice of the year is replicating this history to pull people back up into that history year after year when they sin. No. It's an argument for the Israelite year. By itself, this wouldn't say anything about what the church should do. I think we have one ritual now that does everything, and then one could amplify it somewhat, but at any rate, that's another matter. Now that's the simple form. Now, I'm going to give you the more complex form. You ready? Let's expand this year. The simple year is from the lamb of Passover to the goats of the atonement to the Gentiles. Now let me do it again. Isaac dies as a lamb. Jacob, ascending out of the family, leaving the corrupt family of Isaac behind, and meeting the ladder to heaven, Jacob is the first fruit. Where does first fruits lead to? Forty-nine days later, you get what? It's not up here. I well, will see how much you know. There are two eschatologies. This yeah. There are two eschatologies that stem from Passover. You've got a short history that's measured out to Pentecost. And then you don't count from Pentecost to get to the Day of of Atonement. You go back to Passover and you count a long history to get to the Day of Atonement. You have a bread history that takes you to Pentecost and you've got a wine history that takes you to the Feast of Ingathering, which has to do with wine. It says seven months from this beginning. You got a short history and a long history. A short one and a long one. One that goes to 8070 and one that goes all the way down. And they're parallel. An Israelite history and a history of the 70 nations of the world. But what does Jacob do? Well, he goes out and he forms a community. Jacob as an individual leaves the land and ascends. When he comes back, There's this huge community with him. All these kids, all these flocks. In other words, he's become what? He's become a loaf. In Pentecost, on the day of first fruits, you wave a sheaf, which has become a loaf by the day of Pentecost. Again, pulling in ritual symbolism here and laying it on top of the history. The loaf has been formed. What do you do with the loaf once it's been formed? Tell me. What did Jesus do with it? You break it. Tell me where in the narrative, the patriarchal narrative now the loaf is broken. What would that mean in terms of human society? You would divide the plot. When does that happen? Joseph. When Joseph is separated off, the loaf is broken. And who experiences death? Oh, Jacob experiences death. The loaf is broken. But out of the breaking of this loaf comes the ministry to the Gentiles. Now apply that typologically to the New Testament, the formation of the early church loaf, the breaking of that loaf in 1870, and the sacrifice of the church, and now the gospel to the nations. Apply it to the ritual year, you know, you go to Pentecost, and in a sense, the loaves are offered then. And then you have a larger history that takes you down. Now, I, you say to me, Jim, you've got two things here laid on top of each other. You've got one history that's just, you, you, you said that Jacob and Esau were the day of atonement, now you're saying just has something to do with first proofs. And the reason I can do that, and this is why I say, it takes time. It's because the Day of Atonement is a duplication of Passover at a second level. And so you can put it at the beginning and also here in this place. I wish I had time to... uh, That's frustrating to say I don't have time to do this, I don't have time to do that. But what I really mean is I can't explain (laughs) (laughs) If you will look at the language used in Leviticus, you'll find... That the feasts of the seventh month are a memorial of the feast of the first month. And so the attributes of the feast of the seventh month are the same as the attributes of the feast of the first month, but with some changes and additions in there. That's why I think you can take this history, which after all is vague history, and then when it's given in the ritual calendar, it's made more specific in a ritual kind of a way, and yet it's covering these grounds. We could add in here, if we wanted to, and we would need to for a full picture, this is the patriarchal history, but the history of coming out of Egypt lays over this. you got a Passover lamb, the people come out, they ascend to Mount Sinai, they're formed into a loaf. That history then is also duplicated in the sacrificial system. But The sacrifices are continually putting you back into that history when you sin and fall out. When you fall out of the olive tree, you go to God and you do things that remind God of what He did in the past. In the past, God did stuff with Abraham and Isaac and God did stuff with Jacob and God did stuff with Joseph and God did stuff with Moses and God did stuff with us when we came out of Egypt. And the ritual that we do duplicates those things to remind God that He did that stuff and to ask Him to put us into that. That's what the Lord's Supper does. Because the Lord's Supper duplicates certain things about Jesus' life. And when we do that, it's our way of saying, please put us back into that. Because during this past week, we've messed up. We want to come back in. We want to be part, made part of Jesus' body again. And so we do a very small ritual action before God that says, we accept what you did with Jesus. Now huh. that would be the ultimate pro this is a pro in other words, this is a protochronic history that is duplicated in the microchronic rituals and is applied in the larger macrochronic history of Israel. In other words, you get to the Feast of Tabernacles phase of Israel's history after the exile. That's where you discuss the Feast of England. You get to the Pentecost. The Pentecost event in Israel's history is David and Solomon, the coming of the kingdom. So there's a macrochronic history that expands out of this protochronic stuff in Genesis and is repeated year by year in the microcrons of the ritual. And if we can just get a handle on that, I think it would eventually open up some stuff in the book of Revelation. I mean, I think we can do a little bit with it today. I'd like to say something about our lives. Now, this is, I'm going to talk about another ritual. We could, we could try to unify all of this. That would take a lot of time. So I'm just going to stop talking about this. And if you didn't get all of that, that's because I don't have it all. But that's as much as I can put out and ask and say, you no, you might want to think about this stuff because I think that's useful and there's stuff there that's worthy of a great deal more reflection than I've been able to do on it thus far. Yeah. I think all rituals in all cultures are miniature forms of how they understand life sequences. It may not be how they understand it now, but whenever they were originated, that's what the people who originated them had in mind. I think it's inevitable. It may just be a depth psychology thing, but... Okay, I want you to think about your life in terms of bread and wine. Bread is priestly. The priests are not allowed to drink wine when they're on the job. Kings, on the other hand, are always shown drinking wine in the Bible. The king sits on his throne. The priest never sits down. The king sits down and he's drinking wine. Nehemiah is serving the king wine. Esther, the king, is always drinking wine. Wine has to do with enthronement and rest. The priest never gets to. Now, when a priest becomes a king, like Melchizedek, he becomes a priest king, then he is, has wine as well. So bread comes first. Bread is alpha food at the beginning of the day. You don't start off with wine, I hope. But at night, when you, you know, take your shoes off and rest, you can have a glass of wine. That's omega food. Now, what is going on in your life? This is Rosenstock, stocky stuff. But I think it's relevant to what happens in Jesus' life and to human history and to the book of Revelation. But now, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about this. And, and we got to get out of here, I guess. But, I want to suggest that up until we're about 35 or 40 years old, we are being formed into a loaf. And in the middle of your life, God breaks that loaf. And at that point, you start to be a king. And you get wine. And at the end of your life, that wine is poured out. Paul says, the last thing is, I'm poured out as a drink offering. So that you know, starting around 40 years of age, God starts switching out your blood for wine. You drink enough wine and you don't have blood anymore. you just got wine flowing through your veins. And then when you die, the wine's poured out. Because a true king is also one who dies for his people. And so drinking the wine puts us into Jesus' kingship. But he's a king who dies. Eating the bread puts us into the first part of Jesus' life and bread is broken and transformed. Then we become able to live as sacrifices for others. We move into the wine phase of our life and at the end we're poured out. There's two eschatologies here. There's a bread eschatology and a wine eschatology. You get to Pentecost and the loaf is broken. You move on to the Day of Atonement and the wine is poured out. That's your life. How does it work? Well, How are you formed as a loaf? Human beings are formed out of the past. We all are. None of us ever do anything new until we're fairly, fully grown. We learn what foods to eat and what foods not to eat, what language to speak, how to behave, how to dress, what feels right from our parents. As a child, we don't make any contribution that's new. Everything is being put into us and we're being formed. Then when we become teenagers and we get interested in the opposite of sex, and eventually you get married, all that's happening in marriage is marriage is not so much a new thing as this combination of two old things. Now you've got a wife or a husband who has also been formed completely out of the past, and now you're just putting them together. Two things that have been formed out of the past are merged together, And we're still just forming stuff out of the past. And you get a job. What happens when you get a job? Well, the people who were there on that job before you show you how to do it. And so you learn all kinds of stuff from the past, from going to school, from being on the job. Every last thing in your life is coming from the past and making you a representative of the past. So a fully formed adult male or female who has inheritance from his family, and now that's combined with the inheritance from his wife's family, an inheritance from his schooling, an inheritance from his job, which he's learned from somebody who already knew the job, all of that is combined together to make you a representative of the human race as it exists so far. All these things are coming into your life from the past to form you as someone who represents the past. And that's all you are, which is nice. But you are now where the human race is now. Because where your parents were is what they got from their parents. Except that something may have happened in the middle of their lives that changed them and added to. Now what God wants to do is transform everything that's been done so far Into something new. That's what he does with Abraham. Abraham receives all this stuff from the past, and then God says, I'm going to transform you into something new, boy. I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees." We have no idea how impossible that is. Until you think of Socrates. And when the city told Socrates, you need to leave, he killed himself. Because the ancient man cannot leave. Why can't the ancient man leave? Because there's nothing out there. His God is only this thing, And if you leave, there's no place to go. You have to know that the God is the God everywhere to be able to say, I can leave here and go over there and God is still with me. But if your gods are only the gods of the local hearth and the local city, you can't ever leave it. You can be like Odysseus and you can go fight the Trojan War and then what do you want to do? Go home. All you want to do is go home. You may leave your city and betray it, but you're still doing nothing but thinking about the city that you left. And most of the time you can't leave. God says to Abraham, you can leave because I'm the God who's the God everywhere and I'll go with you. That's something that's very difficult for the ancient man to do. The archaic human being. Abraham becomes a new kind of person that the world has never seen before. He becomes the kind of person who can pack up and leave and go someplace else. Now, we're so used to that because we have a universal God. We've inherited that. It's part of our consciousness. You grew up believing in a universal God. The only reason you grew up believing in a universal God is because Abraham went through a big crisis And God changed him into a new kind of person who could believe in a universal God by putting him through a death and resurrection experience out of earth to where he becomes something new. Then he has to become a father who has a son. Well, that's old hat. But then he has to become the kind of father who can kill a son that God gives him. Then you can add to that Jacob. God gives Jacob things. Then it's a crisis in the middle of Jacob's life after he has inherited the family inheritance by the blessing and he's gone and he's inherited a bunch of stuff from Jacob and it's all been formed up into this new community with his sons and his sheep. God puts him through a death experience at Peniel and he comes out of it a different kind of person. He becomes the kind of person that Joseph starts out being. And then Joseph goes through some horrible experiences death and resurrection experiences, and he becomes the new kind of person, the kind of person who can rule the world, who can feed the world, and who can live in a pagan environment without being tempted. Judah couldn't. Judah got in a pagan environment and he fell right in with it. Joseph becomes the kind of person who is strong enough that where he doesn't have to be isolated anymore, he can live in a pagan environment and change it. And then Moses is taken a step further. And at every point in history, we are at the cusp of history, growing up and inheriting all the stuff that's come from the past, unless our parents have dropped out of history and gone back down to being children again. But if your parents are in Christian history where the Spirit is moving, you inherit this stuff, but at the middle of your life, God is probably going to take you through some kind of hell in order to break all this down and make you into something new. God has lots of different ways of doing it, probably as many different ways as there are people. One thing that happens to everyone that makes them somewhat different is your parents die. And you know, it's funny. Depending on who your parents are, or it may be an adopted parent. Maybe your parents aren't the one that's not... Maybe your natural father is not your real father anymore. Maybe it's a professor or a teacher or somebody else that you've bonded to. But when they die, you're suddenly alone. It makes a difference. And canopy has gone off your head. And you suddenly feel the rain. That makes some changes. But if you go through a dark night of the soul, if your wife dies, if you lose children, if you lose your job, or if you just have several bad years where you feel like God is far away and you can't talk to Him anymore, that's the breaking of this loaf. And out of that suffering and sense of abandonment, you have been sacrificed and now... You become the kind of king who has wine that can be poured out. God wants to make us like Jesus so that we are ready to be spent for others. And we learn that by going through some type of crisis. You know, it may be a a relatively mild thing that you're not so much aware of, or it may be a great big crisis. Young people, you know, I hate to give a lecture like this with young people in the room because it just terrifies them. But, you know, it's God is faithful. And if you wait on Him, you will renew your strength. But there are times, and the, that's why the Psalms are so good, because the Psalms talk about this. This hard thing that happens in different ways to different people in the middle of life, if you live the normal 80 or 70 or 80 year lifespan. You become a wine kind of person. And the wine is rule. In other words, you become wise. All of this has been transformed into wisdom. You have kingly wisdom. But you also are like a king in being able to die for others more readily. And at the end of your life, that will be poured out as a drink offering. Now, if that's your biography, folks, that's duplicated in the ritual of the Lord's Supper. And the reason that that's duplicated, and I'm just running backwards here because it's easier to see this in our biography as we go from bread to wine, and then to see that that's what happens in the Lord's Supper, And now if we can think that way, look back at Jesus' life, it's because Jesus' life is like that. Jesus inherits everything from the past when he is baptized. And he becomes the anointed priest. The Spirit gives us the past inheritance by plugging us in. Of course, Jesus was always plugged in. But in terms of what is being told us and for us, Jesus becomes a priest and he inherits everything and he serves as a priest. He doesn't rule. He doesn't divide people's inheritance. He doesn't act like a king. Then he becomes king. And he becomes king in the sense that I'm talking about here when he comes to Jerusalem. And he takes his seat in the temple as a priest king. Especially in Mark you'll find this. I want to read a little bit. We're not too far from being done here, so let me do this. Matthew, there's an emphasis. See, we're so used to thinking, oh, Jesus sat down to do this, you think, we don't think about it, but the question is, why does the text tell us whether he was sitting down or not? And in a sense, who cares whether he was walking or sitting down? There's some reason why we're told if he sits down. Matthew 23, verse 2, the scribes and Pharisees have sat down. In chapter 24, verse 3, Jesus goes out of the Mount of Olives and it says, He sat down as He was sitting on the Mount of Olives. Well, remember, the Holy of Holies is made of olives. And so, sitting on the Mount of Olives is conceptually related to being a priest who is sitting down in throne. In Mark which is more kingly oriented than Matthew, we have more kingly type language when Jesus comes to Jerusalem and is made king. First, of course, he rides into the city and they treat him as a king. But beyond that, in Mark 11, verse 11, he entered Jerusalem, came into the temple, and after looking all around, he departed for Bethany. Well, who cares? Jesus comes in the temple and looks around. You know, you can read that in an awfully trivial way. But obviously it's not included here as some trivia. Jesus looking around as he's making an inspection. Because this is his. He's the king. He's looking over the place. So he comes back the next day and he cleanses the temple in verse 15. Because it's his. In chapter 27 we see his oversight over it. As king, verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple. He's walking around in this place. And then they have all these uh, conversations with him and challenge him. In chapter 12, Jesus is teaching in the temple. Verse 35, it says, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said these things. And verse 41, it says, he sat down opposite the treasury and began to observe. He takes his seat in the temple of God. You see, that's what the man of sin counterfeits. That Jesus comes as a priest-king and takes his seat. And then as king, he pours out his life. That's why we are made kings, so that we can pour out our lives as king. John 12, one last passage that sort of speaks to this. John twelve, twelve to 15. Well, that's just Jesus coming into the city on the donkey. You know, Hosanna to the king of Israel. That's as much as John gives of it there because John's purpose is different. Jesus becomes a king. And he dies as king. Now, in a sense, in Jesus' life, the bread part being formed as a loaf and being broken, being made a king and pouring out his life as king, those two things happen simultaneously. But in our life, there are two phases. And in the Lord's Supper, there are two phases. You take bread and you break it. You take wine and you drink it. And that enables you to be poured out later on. So then, the microchron, no, the protochronic sequence is the life of Jesus. The microchronic sequence is the sequence of the Lord's Supper, which tells us about the life of Jesus and gives us that life by the Spirit. And the macrochronic application is to your life. My life has that same contour. And since God is three in one and human beings are a race as well as individuals, the history of the human race has that structure and contour. The Old Covenant is the time of the formation of the priestly loaf, and the breaking of that loaf is the transition of the apostolic age. Then the church ascends to heaven in Revelation 20 and sits down on thrones. Before that they were under the altar, associated with the altar as priests. Then they sit down on thrones in heaven, and that's kingly, and then at the end there's a pouring out at the last day. All that is poured out and transformed. And that's why in Revelation chapter 20, after the millennium, there is one last crisis. Those who are ruling with Christ during the millennium are poured out. And then history is transformed into the final time after that resurrection. So those are some thoughts. Some thoughts. That's as much as it could be. Because obviously there is a huge amount of data in the Bible that pertains to this. All the stuff in Leviticus and all the rest... And to do a full job of expounding this, I'd have to, you know, we'd have to start looking at all the details and unifying all the details. I hope I've said enough to say that if we can learn to think this way, I think it will open up some dimensions of the Bible, its applicability to our lives and to our culture. And if we got back to the book of Revelation, which we won't do right now, you see that the whole thing is set out as a ritual that corresponds to history that's taking up that previous history. That's all related to the original time, the ritual time, and the time of application. Uh huh. No, I think that the essence of the ritual is that it doesn't change and that it's simple. Because it's constantly pulling you back to the foundation. and God changes it some with the coming of the temple and then he changes it again in Ezekiel if you assume that Ezekiel is giving rules and I think it is for the restoration only Zadokites are to do it do the sacrifices this way slight changes God institutes those changes and now we've come to the final form which returns to something very simple uh huh. Yeah, Melchizedek, no, bread and wine. It becomes, yeah. Do you expand out into this history that just pull back together again into something that was simple like it was in the beginning? Micro uh-huh. uh, uh, chronic is the ritual of the Lord's Supper which is telling us about Jesus' life and what it means to us. Uh-huh. And we do it. I mean, we do it as a memorial. That doesn't mean it's done to remind me. It's done to remind God. So we do it. We're saying we affirm what, you know, we want the life of Jesus for us.
0: Uh huh. Yeah.
1: Yeah. One, equal ultimately the one in the many macro chronic is your biography. It's also the history of the church. Possibly the history of each local church. I mean... Taxonomically, you look at the letters of seven churches and you think, I, I wonder, you know, if you could look at the biography of a particular denomination and say, what kinds of phases does it go through? God builds up a certain community of people in a church and he takes them through real hard times and they come out of it much better able to serve than before. I think you would expect the God who works this way is going to work this way with local churches, with individuals, with whole nations of churches and so forth. I'm not quite sure what. Yeah, if the king pours out his life and death, I think ultimately that makes you a prophet. And maybe that's the real eldership at the end of your life when you're no longer able to act as a king and you've largely poured yourself out. There will be various levels of application. But I think there's something. The prophet is the person who has matured beyond being a king. Uh huh. Yeah, Peter? A ritual dimension? I'm not sure it does. But then I don't have this totally worked out. I just kind of wanted to dump it out because we'll get more thought. See, at next year's conference, Peter will have a whole lot of interesting things to say. If I've jogged his mind any on this, you see. Ritual. Of course, Myers won't because he's in here. We're not going to let him hear this tape either. Any of you think about some of this stuff? See how useful it is. If it's just some superficial stuff that I notice, it's not all that important. Then maybe that's all it is. But it seems to me that it keys into some stuff and explains a lot. I mean, we don't know anything about ritual as American Protestants, and the people who do write on it mostly write nonsense on it. So I'm trying to, you know, look at the Bible and say, okay, what is the biblical understanding of why you would do these little ritual things? I think it keys into the, pretty much the way I've set it out, uh-huh. I'm not sure the word mystery means that nobody knew anything about it so much as that it has the idea of something that was, in some sense, not revealed how it would happen. But that's always the toughy, what does mystery mean? Something held back. Something revealed only in parables. And like, you, maybe you're right, that the rituals in the day of the Feast of Tabernacles certainly points to. Okay, it's called in gathering, and all the texts around it, particularly after the exile, are all about Gentiles coming in, Zechariah and other places. Yet, they don't seem to have understood that the right way. They understood it to mean the Gentiles would all be circumcised and become Jews. <laughs> Which was not the right way of understanding. Yeah, and then there again, the parallel between human beings and animals is, uh, is in the background. Somehow or other, whatever happened to Jacob, it has a relationship with the sacrificial system. Partly, when you come to the sacrifices in Leviticus and you do them, you're becoming like Jacob. That's being built into your life. You're getting the foot wound that shows that you are regarded by God as somebody worthy to be in the land. I can't remember. No, it's, I think it's the leg. The priest goes. The priest gets the shoulder. Yeah. I can't remember that from year to year. <laughs> I want to do one more thing. This was supposed to be odd and unusual, bizarre stuff on Revelation, and I think I probably succeeded in challenging you. This is how I understand the apostolic age and its phases, and the, this is fairly self-explanatory, I think. But the one thing I wanted to show, to to point to, in terms of rereading Revelation, is that you have a kind of a millennium during the apostolic period. That is the protochron of the millennium that we are in right now. A millennium is a time when Satan is bound. And it comes after a death and a resurrection that applies to the church. Well, period one, we have Pentecost of the death of Stephen. Stephen is killed. Paul goes forth to destroy the church, and the church scatters down at the end of that. We have a period of peace for the church that comes after that death, according to Acts 9. Paul is converted and it says the church enjoyed peace and was built up. Then we have, and built up, kind of formed into a loaf of some sort. And then you have the death of James, the death and resurrection of Peter. Things shift to Paul. Paul goes out and continues doing this stuff. But you have a peace time and then a time of tribulation where Herod brings tribulation. Now notice these passages in Acts 12, Acts 11 and 12. Herod takes his seat in the temple as a man of sin claiming to be God. And after Herod tribulates the saints and they are resurrected, Herod is killed. Now that doesn't happen in AD It happens in AD 44. But it's very similar to what happens in AD 70. The Jews, greater Herods, greater Edomites, apostates attack the church, then they are killed, the church undergoes a death and resurrection, the man of sin takes his seat in the temple claiming to be God, someone worse than Herod in A.D. 44 who takes a seat and receives divine honors. So this history doesn't just happen once. It happens here and then there is a Judaizing conflict. Satan is loose to attack the church. In Revelation 12, this is really where I'm drawing this phases of history. Revelation 12, verse 13. When the dragon saw he was thrown down to the earth, and this happens basically at Pentecost, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. That's the attack on Stephen in the church. Two wings of the eagle were given to the woman. She might fly into the wilderness and have peace. So she's nourished for a time, times, and a half a time away from the presence of the serpent. That's the peaceful time in Acts 9. Then the serpent does something else, and this is period 3. So the first period is the dragon's attack on the woman. The second period is the woman is in the wilderness and she experiences peace for a time, times, and a half a time. The third period is the Judaizing conflict. The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman that he may cause her to be swept away from the flood. The Water is false doctrine. So Satan is loosed to attack the church here. And I think that's Revelation 9 and the locust army coming up as Judaizers. Then the Judaizers are defeated and Satan is bound again for another peace period. The land helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and drank up the water which drank the river that the dragon poured out of his mouth. I'm going to read this again. The land helped the woman, the church, and the land, the Jews, opened their mouth and drank up the river of poisonous doctrine which the dragon poured out of his mouth. The so the Jews and the Judaizers drank up more and more of the doctrine of demons. Meanwhile, Paul... What? said ground
0: it up.
1: I don't think the word help means... carries with it an emotional intention on the part of the earth. It just means as a result of what it did, the church was assisted. Then... The Judaizers are defeated by Paul and as a result of the church is protected because what has happened is it's now become clear that the Judaizers are not the church. And so the Judaizers are no longer in the church. It's just like when you have trouble in the church and finally a bunch of troublemakers leave and you experience peace. That's what's happening next. The Judaizers are now it's clear who they are. They've got their own Ebionite churches over here. They've got their own Messianic synagogues. They're no longer bothering us. And we're experiencing peace. And Satan, according to the book of Revelation, is back in the abyss because he's been defeated. And then Satan comes back, period five, one last time. He goes to make war with the rest of her offspring and he calls up the Roman beast. He deceives all the nations. And he's released. He's released. Now, I'm drawing this from Revelation 17, verse 8, where at the time the book of Revelation was written, Jesus says to John, or the angel says to John, the beast that you saw was and is not. This book is written in 8062. The beast, this is the dragon beast now, not the Roman beast. The dragon is not accomplishing anything in AD 62. He was out of the abyss and is about to come back up, come out of the abyss, and go to destruction. Let's draw it. Satan comes up out of the abyss. He brings up the He He's deceiving everybody. The Judaism are defeated. Satan's sent back into the pit. He's bound. A few years. Then he's going to come back up into the pit for the final tribulation. And then he's going to be bound again. The beast that you saw, this is the scarlet beast, this is the dragon, the combination figure, not Rome so much. Was he came out of the abyss with the Judaizing army? Is not. Right now, he's been defeated. You're enjoying peace. And is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. That's how I take this. Now, that tells me something about reading the book of Revelation. That's the history there. Satan is bound at certain times. He was loosed at certain times. When I get to chapter 20, it tells me that in AD 70, when the saints ascend into heaven, Satan is bound for a long time. Not just for a couple of years here. But for a long time. A thousand years. And since 1,000 years is a day, that means three hundred and sixty-five thousand thousand years. That's how long it'll be to the day. That's the Nigel Lee type of interpretation. Real we won't go quite that specific. And then, Satan is loosed a little while to deceive the nations. And it says, he gathers them around the church, the beloved city, for... A little while. He must be loosed for a little season. Where is that? Oh, yeah. After these things, he must release for a short time. Well, in the book of Revelation, we've had him released for a short time. The tribulation was a short time. 42 months is what it's called. That's a little season. At the end of our history, this will happen again. Because the church needs to go through that final tribulation to participate with her Lord. And that needs to happen for the bride as a whole. And it will happen. And it will happen on analogy to this. Well, now, think about this and then we're going to stop. That sends us back to read the book of Revelation again and understand that what the book of Revelation talks about in terms of the loosening of Satan for a little season and what the church goes through is also a prediction of what's going to happen just before Jesus comes back. Now, the first order interpretation of the book is that it's talking about the Apostolic Age. Yesterday I showed you that we reread it and understand that the, the angels with the trumpets and the bowls are the pastors of the churches and the book is having a continual application. Now I'm telling you this passage and these parallels force us to go back and reread the book and understand that these same kind of things are going to happen just before Jesus comes back. So you see, the church has always been right in its interpretation of the book of Revelation, not right in the detail. But it's always been essentially right. In a sense, you can't get it wrong. Which I think is a very interesting perspective on the book. It's not so complicated. It's almost impossible to get it wrong. There is a validity to a futurist reading. It can't be the first reading. It's only when we get down to this point and we're told, this history is going to happen again at the end of time, that we understand a futurist reading. But then we go back and read it again and say, oh, you know, now Lindsay's crazy, but Darby wasn't entirely crazy. The more sober guys who did futuristic readings, they weren't entirely crazy.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.